This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Stephen Levine. Stephen is a poet and a meditation teacher who has worked counseling the dying and their loved ones for the past 40 years. He's the author of the best-selling books, Who Dies? and A Year to Live. With Sounds True, Stephen has turned his groundbreaking work from A Year to Live into an audio learning program. Sounds True has also published other audio titles with Stephen Levine, including In the Heart Lies the Deathless, The Grief Process, and a program recorded along with his wife, Andrea, to love and be loved. In this episode, Stephen and I spoke about the power of softening to our suffering, living mindfully as a preparation for death. Stephen also introduced us to the practice of soft belly. Here's my conversation with Stephen Levine. Stephen, when I first started Sounds True back in 1985, you were one of the first authors that I worked with. Some of your early recordings were some of the first recordings to come through Sounds True. And I'm wondering what it's like for you now, 25 years later since Sounds True began, and It's been, I think, over a decade since you've no longer been teaching publicly, been on the circuit out there, shaking it at workshops and conference centers. Just what what it's like to you to be in this different phase of your life, one might say semi-obscurity in the mountains of New Mexico. What's that been like for you? This obscurity, this is a good thing. It allows us uh, some quiet, allows us to practice what we've been preaching for 40 years. Uh, Also, it suits aging very well, because aging is a shedding time and an opening time at the same time. And so is kind of what has organically happened in our work for so many years we sat bedside or we were doing uh, in services in hospitals or universities and uh, there's a lot of energy going out and it's nice to be quiet it's nice to live there's nothing like the forest to uh, bring you to your senses as it were now you said something interesting that it it's given you a chance to really live what you have been teaching for 40 years what are the key ideas when you say that? What what are the key teachings that you're exploring directly in your life now? Surrender. I think all spiritual work is at one level or another, or at many progressive levels, uh, a matter of uh, shedding, a matter of, uh, of kind of getting reborn. Letting go. So really the letting go, the process that that happens in meditation when the mind uh, slides away from the awareness of the breath and goes out in its, you know, fairy tale thinking, instead of doing that, uh, that letting go, we're doing the more and more the letting go of uh, what is um, not whole, what is not uh, clear-minded what is not compassionate. And of course, this letting go has to be done with so much compassion itself. Because as soon as we see that we letting go is the appropriate measure or move, we tend then to have judgment come in. So awareness, very clear awareness of what is happening, while it's happening, what the sensations are, watching what's going on within. It's the same as any meditation or any practice. Or, you know, we're, now we're sitting bedside with ourselves, so to speak. Hmm. Well, I, I want to talk more about that, but I want to just be clear. When you say shedding, that you're in, a, in that phase of life, what, what specifically are you shedding? Well, um, 
shedding, as you said, a lot of attention from being uh, being uh, tra- traveling so much and having such large groups. But I think really the shedding is the shedding of um, anything other than uh, the sacred, and that's a mouthful. That sounds that's quite um, that, that that borders on being hyperbolic, but. The, the the whole process, I think, of spirituality is a letting go of what we have acquired to find out what we have been all along. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. It's really the, looking for the heart of the matter. And, of course, it's much easier for us, in a way, and I have to say that, because it's so easy for people to say, well, I'll, I'll just jump in and do what they're doing. Absolutely. But when you have a partner like I have, and like Andrea has, as Andrea would say, um, it makes it easier because somebody can say, you know, you're sliding, you're you're a little bit off the mark. The trail is over to the left. You went to pee in the bushes, and you just got lost somewhere. <laughs> and that's very very helpful to have somebody tap you on the shoulder and said, you know, remember the Dharma. Yeah. Well, it does seem that your relationship with Andrea, that 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 relationship has truly been. Would you say the a, your central path, central to your path? How would you put it? Well, before I met her, a relationship was not central to my path. When we met, relationship not only became central to our path, but we heard so many people in the course of the process of their letting go of their body, of them shedding their body, and all the relationships they have in their life, it really brought our attention to the difficulty in relationship is the grace of relationship because it brings our attention to where we're holding and when we say holding we generally mean holding back but there's another kind of holding there's the kind of holding where we're attached to the negative we think when people talk about being attached they're being attached to their new car or their new boyfriend or their new carpet but we're talking about attachment to um, attachment to our suffering. We've built a, 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 a conditioned attachment to our suffering, so much so that when we define ourselves, suffering is part of it. When we define ourselves, it's unfortunately because we're so unkind to ourselves, we're so merciless. We we, we forget that. Um, this this grasping of the mind is just a given, and that mercy is called for. And, and as mercy gets called for forward, uh, it makes you see what you aren't. I mean, really, learning loving kindness comes from watching how unloving we are sometimes. Now, you know, I, I love the way you use the word mercy. I think you're, you're someone who really introduced that, at least into my vocabulary. Why, why do you use that word? What does that mean to you? Actually, I looked for a word. Um, uh, compassion is an excellent word. Uh, a, a little bit confusing in most people's mind because it's not a word they were brought up with, perhaps, or a word that they learned in early on, you know, before they were seven, before they were ten. Um, mercy, I looked for a word in, our, in the Western vocabulary and the problem with all of the words have a certain drawback, a certain cultural um, judgment, negativity. And mercy has that too, because so many people, it's like, have mercy on me because I've done something wrong. But when we talk about mercy, we're talking about having uh, uh, turning to oneself with kindness and with care, and starting to treat oneself like you treat another. Most of us have learned to live or been encouraged to live in a manner where we get love and we we want to be loved and we think that being loved is the highest point but actually loving is the highest point when you love someone even theoretically and actually we've seen it actually too you can love someone that hates you you can love someone a woman told us once she was one of three daughters of a mother who was very cold-hearted, so much so that the other two daughters refused to be with the mother while she was dying because they said, I'm not going to sit in there and just be uh, hassled for 
eight days or ten days or eight months or whatever it's going to be. I'm not going to just sit there and have her abuse me. I'm not going to go. So the one daughter who had been practicing Dharma for some time, meditation, said, I'll go. I'll do it. And she sat with her mother. And it took a while. It was, it was weeks, of course, naturally. And her mother, as every time she would get really sick, really get really feel really poor, dizzy, nauseous, all the things that come along with medication and with the shedding of the body. Uh, and of course, because she was such an angry person, it was a difficult time for her. She wasn't really shedding. She was getting rope burns from holding on, her mother was. And during this period, her mother just upbraided her in the most horrific manner, calling her names that you wouldn't call your worst enemy. Just terrible. Saying what a terrible daughter she was and how she, uh, she wished she'd she should have been aborted and just the kind of things that only would come to a mind that was full of hatred and this woman who had been practicing dharma for a few years this doesn't come easy this kind of action then or, or, or response that she had she just sat there and loved her mom just loved her and loved her and loved her and her mom just screamed and yelled and pulled back from her touch and her mom full of hatred, died, surrounded by love. Now, her mother probably got next to nothing from that, although you don't know. She might have gotten quite an insight. But the woman who gave this love, the woman who, who experienced loving, not being loved, in fact, being unloved, but being loving, she grew so much. She gained and she became a person that people who were dying called for. Now, Stephen, you, you said something very interesting, which is that in our relationships, we can discover where we're holding on in this, in this relationship and that we see where we're holding on and that we might actually be holding on to our suffering that often, often people are. And then you said this is where we need to have mercy. And we then started talking about the word mercy with this uh, beautiful example and the power of loving. But the question I have is, if we see in ourselves that we're holding on to our suffering in some way, how do we, how do we really soften to that? I mean, it's not, it's, you, you're using some words to describe it, but the actual experience can be really hard. Well, you know, we work with all our patients and with all our practitioners and all our, what you could call students, with a practice called soft belly. And soft belly seems when we start to soften the musculature of the abdomen. I mean, even as people are listening now, if you will notice, just in trying to understand what's being said, even in, in, in trying to uh, appreciate, maybe even make a mental note of things, your belly tightens. Whenever we are reaching for something, whenever we're grasping something, whenever wanting is strong, our fear, which is our, one of our greatest, the strongest wants is fear, um, when that happens, our belly tightens, our abdomen tightens. But look what happens now as I'm talking for the people who are listening. <sighs> Just soften your belly. So much holding. I mean, we hold all day long. No wonder we're so exhausted at the end of the day. Just let your belly go now. You may not even know what that means. It just shows how, how habituated we have become to our suffering. Just let go. Let go. It's so painful. How can we do this to ourselves? How long are we going to do this? If we saw this, someone in a restaurant treating the person they were with in the kind of language we call ourselves, in the kind of labeling we do, we would be so disgusted we wouldn't be able to eat. But we forget. We forget that we're a human being. We forget that Buddha said you could look the whole world over and never find anyone more deserving of love than yourself. That's shocking to our system. We've become habituated to our suffering so profoundly. Let's just soften the belly. <sighs> just let it go. Breathing in, let it go all the way down into the belly. Breathing out, 
just let it go. Breathing in a kind of quiet, a kind of fullness of the spirit. And breathing out, just letting go of all that mercilessness with ourselves. How is it that we get so angry at the person we love most or that we get so frightened of the person we love most? Why is it we live standing on one foot? Soften the belly. Put the other foot down on the ground. Have mercy on yourself. Why live a life where only half of you is present? We're only, you know, we live our life as though it were a fever dream. We're always hiding. We're half present and we're half thinking. We're half hoping and we're half fearing. We're never whole. It's all there for us to be whole. It's not like wholeness is uh, some hidden abstraction. It's present right now. It's just hidden under our fear. It's just hidden under our self-doubt. It's hidden behind the, the, the screen of the hard belly. In soft belly is exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for someone to love and to be loved by. And it's right there, right there in the belly. You know, if, if, this was your, if, if this was your child coming to you, if this was your sister coming to you, if this was your lover coming to you and they said, I've got a terrible problem, I can't, I can't get into myself. I, as soon as I start to get into myself, I ricochet off. I keep getting lost in who I'm afraid I am. I never get to find out who I really am. You would just put your arms around them and you would let your deepest intuition, which is getting real close to your true self when you're in deep intuition. You would let your deep intuition, you would say anything, no matter how crazy it sounds, even soften your belly. Maybe it'll make you feel better. Sounds crazy. And people soften their belly, and they find out they're getting along with their children better. They find out that when judgment comes up, they notice in their mind, they can note, oh, judgment, judgment, big surprise. Same old thing. After everything I say, the, the, the shadow of judgment lurks just off stage. And it's so, it's so debilitating. We're so fatigued. We're fatigued from all this judgment. You know, Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. But nobody told us that the judging mind doesn't know the difference between ourselves and the person sitting next to us. So when we're judging, we're anyone we're actually judging ourselves it just is getting boring now Stephen, i love this soft belly practice it's something that um, has made a really big impact on me from your work from two decades ago when i first heard you say it and i'm, I'm curious how did this first occur to you this these this phrase soft belly <laughs> to be perfectly truthful yeah i'm a little hesitant to say this there is another practice, a very, very excellent practice, a very excellent practice, but it talks about tightening the belly. It talks about tightening, uh, holding the belly so to keep concentration, to keep awake. Um, we have a dentist that says, um, okay, now, this might hurt. Tighten your, tighten your foot, tighten your jaw. Tight. The worst possible the worst possible advice you could give anybody is to tighten in the middle of pain. And that was very noticeable, that this idea of tightening the belly, of tightening the hara, as it's called in Zen, that, that, although that's an excellent idea within its context, in a larger context, it may not be as useful. In a larger context, it may be that we could be softening our belly moment to moment, day to day and we would be astonished at the level of being able to participate in our own life would be and that's what I found as I started to soften the belly um, uh, I just noticed there was more room for the heart more room for mercy more room also there is a trigger in softening the belly, one of the things that people who are doing like Vipassana meditation, where they're watching the breath, and if the breath goes away, if they, they sail away in a laundry lists or what they want to do for their birthday party or whatever it is, and then they come back to the breath. 
we have found that softening is a trigger for letting go and that everything we're talking about in this conversation really becomes more and more integrated because that's the thing you can understand something but not have integrated it not have been able to make it a, 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 a normal effortless exp- uh, uh, um, outpouring of their true nature so as we found that the, how uh, powerful the softening was power, it is the key for letting go when you're caught anywhere, soften the belly, and you'll find that you can come right back to uh, wholeness or approaching wholeness. And it was, I find softening the belly, beside being very functional for meditation and for, just, and for relationship, it, it's crucial for people who are in a tight hard place like people dying and when we are with people dying and we talk to them about softening and just soften just be with what is you know this isn't what you want but this is what is and just feel the love that you were that you're that is your your life that is your inborn being that is your birthright and we and when people start to treasure themselves a little bit, death is so much easier. Because for most people, death is I didn't finish, I'm not done. I am not done on a lot of levels, and I may not even be done on the levels where I'm concerned that I'm leaving other people in pain. So uh, I think that the softness is a gift. It's a natural gift to us. It, it is inborn in the body. Anyone can do it. And in fact, it's non-religious. It's not. You could even say it's not spiritual, although it gives access to the spirit, to the nameless vastness of being that is our birthright. Uh, it still, in a sense, could be said not to be spiritual because it's not separate from anything. Now, interestingly, when you were introducing us to this soft belly practice, you said you may have one foot on the ground, put your other foot on the ground. What, were, right. what, what did you mean by that? Uh, that uh, most people live, um, it's the same thing as that. As I was saying, we live our half-life. We live as though we're in a fever dream. Most people uh, don't have balance. In fact, if you, when people start to do the walking meditation, where you're just taking a walk, a, a step, and you're feeling your foot lift, and you're feeling your foot go forward, and you're feeling your foot go back down on the ground, you're noticing your mind say, "Okay, now next step." Um, in, in in the doing of that, in the doing of that, um, there is a there's a lot of letting go and uh, a profound sense of what is our internal gift, that this is so available to us. You soften your belly even in the midst of dying, even in the midst of fear. Uh, It's grace. And grace isn't always pleasant, but it always brings us closer to our true nature. And I think as we walk, we learn, we're lifting up a foot, we're putting down a foot, and all of a sudden you realize, I have never learned how to walk just like when people are doing the breathing meditation they realize i've never learned how to breathe i don't even know what my breath is i i I think i own my breath what happens if i let go of my breath what happens if i let my breath breathe itself what happens if i let thoughts think themselves feelings feel themselves love just love for the for its own perfect grace in being, and I think that these these things you put the other foot down on the ground means you're stable. It, it has to do with wholeness. Now I think an excellent meditation is to just stand, just stand for we'll say ten minutes, and watch how your energy shifts from foot to foot. We can't be still even when we want to be still. I remember being in a meditation hall. We're in a meditation hall. It's like two in the morning. Most of us are sitting on benches. A few of us are sitting on on zafus, on on cushions, meditation cushions. It's dead silent in the room. You'd think that everybody in that room was in some kind of extraordinary both-foot-down samadhi. In the room, all of a sudden, there's a creak these old benches that we're sitting on, people have been sitting on for a long time, and they're a little, they're a little wobbly, and you hear creak, 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 and they hear crash. Oh, shit. And the whole group broke up in laughter because that 
oh shit, was the other foot coming down on the ground, and everybody was experiencing it. It was an extraordinary moment, a moment that nobody in the room, I'm sure, has forgotten. Because in that creaking, creaking, that was us all, two o'clock in the morning, trying to get free of, you know, maybe it was something we learned at six months old when we were pre-linguistic. Who knows? But we're trying to shed. Our bellies are getting softer. Our hearts are getting more open. The room is less dark and more like black satin. It's a perfect space for quietude. And then this thing comes up. And this thing is us. It's the mind. It's the one foot dangling in the air before it puts itself down. That's as close as I can get to answering that question. Stephen, I want, I want to talk to you about something that uh, has been an ongoing question to me and something I've talked to a lot of people about. So here you wrote the book, Who Dies? And you've sat at the bedside of innumerable people through the dying process. And of course, we know a lot, I think, about the dying process and even people's near-death experiences. But I want to know what you know about what actually happens when we die, after we die. What can we know about that? Well, my sense is, if you're mindful now, you'll be mindful then. And if you're not mindful now, and you just think, well, maybe I'll die on a lucky day, that could happen. We've seen people in terrible shape have excellent death. Excellent meaning that they were loving the people that they had been so angry at and they, had, they were holding children they had t- touched in a long time, that kind of thing, once in a while. But I wouldn't count on luck in, a, in something like that. I think the more presence, the more we build presence, which means awareness, the more we'll know where we are no matter what is happening and no matter where we are. So I think that the, the preparation for death is living mindfully. Uh, now, I mean, I can say what I think death is, and I can say why I think death is, but that's me, and that's my hallucination. You know, I have a very powerful sense of the preservation of that which took birth in the first place, and that death is perfectly safe. Um, and that the more we don't hold on, the more we trust our, the more we trust mercy, the more we trust soft belly, the more we trust, the more we trust loving kindness. Um, we don't need a schematic for death. Uh, self-forgiveness is very powerful. But you try practicing it now, not on your deathbed, because the problem is people read books like Who Dies and they say, that's what I'm going to do on my deathbed. But there's a problem there, because on our deathbed, our concentration might be quite weak for any number of reasons, from illness to the medications that they give us sometimes really weaken us, make us uh, nauseous and dizzy and, and, uh, you know, just uh, crazy-minded sometimes from exhaustion. So, um, really, uh, the preparation for death is, is knowing what the blockages to the heart are. And we're talking about that... We, you and I were just talking about that in how relationship can give you an insight into the blockages to the heart, just as it can give an insight into the qualities that open the heart and the qualities, even more important, that maintain the heart. So um, what I know about death is that I don't know nothing, but I do trust it. You know, we can know things are true without understanding them. Um, we could be wrong. But uh, there is, uh, it seems to be in death, uh, a chance for phenomenal insight into what it was that took birth in the first place. Um, You know, uh, we talk about the birth, the healing we took birth for. And I think that, that sometimes dying can give us some insight into the healing we took birth for. Uh, I think the more, one of the best uh, practices, in a sense, you could say, to prepare not for death but for dying is to work with your pain a little bit. When you get a, you get stub your toe, you know what we, what do we do in the middle of the night when we're walking across the room, we're going to the bathroom, and we stub our toe? What is our automatic before we can get to our shield, the shield of 
of mindfulness, as some people use it, it until it gets a little deeper. Before we go to our, our, our shield, what do we do? We send hatred into our pain. We send hatred into our stub toe. That's not what the stub toe needs. And you can watch this. This is a, that really an object lesson. You can watch what happens. Send hatred into your toe. Send it, send it, send it. Ah, now stop. Now soften. Soften that toe. Soften that judgment. Soften that sending. Just be. Just start to rest in being. Let the, the throbbing, the throbbing, it's just sensation. If you watch it closely, it's just movement. If you watch it even closer, it's just momentary micro-changes. And I think that the, um, the more we see, the more we see that even pain is workable. You work on your little pains. You don't wait till you have a 500-pound pain. You work with a 5-pound pain. You work with a 10-pound pain. And you start to soften around it. Again, softening. I mean, there's almost no time I can think of when softening isn't appropriate. But there are times when softening is not appropriate. If you're being attacked, do not soften. Run. <laughs> do, do not think, oh, this is a perfect chance to be a saint. No, this is a perfect chance to get out of there and let their other person's karma be their karma. You know that story we used to tell about Sharon when Sharon was Sharon Salzburg was in India and she was uh they were, she and a friend were in town and they, they were trying to get a train back to I think they were at Manindra's at the time and they were late and they were on the other side of town and they usually walked. They never took rickshaws. They didn't like that, but this was a special uh situation and they uh they had to take a rickshaw. So this guy is taking it to they say, Get us to the train station, please please we'll tip you extra we're sorry that, but please we need so the fellow's taking a shortcut down a dark street that they would never have walked and a drunken man comes stumbling out of a bar and jumps up on top of uh, Sharon in the rickshaw the fellow that Sharon was with had the presence of mind to put his hand and his foot out and push the guy out of the rickshaw and tell the rickshaw driver just keep going just keep going they get back to Manindra they get back to their teacher and they tell him what um, what should we have done when this fellow done? When this fellow came up to us uh, and he jumped up on the thing, I don't want to be violent and everything or anything, what do we do? And Menendra said, you know, when that fellow jumped up, you should have, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have beat him over the head with your umbrella. <laughs> 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 a perfect time not to have a soft belly. <laughs> But then afterward, much soft belly, much sharing with other people, much laughter, and, and in one person's experience, a communication to others. And when Menindra said that, Menindra was saying, don't be, be simple, don't be a simpleton. Mm -hmm. Somebody attacks you, so do not surrender. Get the hell out of there. Now, we've heard people say they surrendered and it, it maybe saved their life. More often, not. My suggestion is get the hell out of there. Do whatever you can to free yourself from an approaching danger. I mean, that's that's just we, as you know, we've worked with a lot of women who've had very, very bad times because of being seen as sexual objects. And we would say to any of them, you know, uh, you can do your your forgiveness later on. You can be your Buddhist self later on. But get yourself out of there. If there's any option to get yourself out of there, do it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's um, very clear. We're, yeah. we're getting onto a little bit of a. <laughs> this is my shtick. This is this is an issue for me because <laughs> as you know, the work we've done, we've seen such suffering come down out of this. Uh, terrible, terrible sexual confusion. Yeah, and it sounds like you say this is a little bit of a shtick because you want to be clear to people that there's a, a time to fight the good fight and get out as well as a time to soften and forgive and to know what time Absolutely. you're in. Yeah. And, they, and that same person, this, uh, the same mind, just a different time and a different place. You can do all your softening. I mean, it's, it's like a... Uh, we shouldn't. I don't want to get into this because this is a long, long subject. As you know, we've done a lot of work with this, a lot of writing about this. But I would just say, um, have mercy on yourself. If you have mercy on yourself now, if you build the capacity to be kind to yourself now, to soften when something's hard now, that quality will be available to you at another moment. It may not be 
completely available to you. You know, it may not be available to you at all, but it will be available to you eventually. Now, Stephen, I want to circle back to the death question that I asked you, because per- it's, it's an obsession of mine. And also, you've sat bedside with so many different people. So right. I, I hear you say that you now know death is safe. Right. And, and what I'm curious about, you said even if we, we can know things, even if we don't understand them fully, what, what has given you that knowing is it your experience sitting at the bedside and seeing the experience people that go through your own inner sense of of knowing what actually meditation when you go beyond what we call mind um you see something else and uh, that something else you see is um the deathless and when you see the deathless when you experience the deathless, when the deathless is no longer, uh, when you, you have to be able to go through your fear of death in order to see the deathless, even though those moments may only be a, a second here and a second there, they accumulate. And one of the ways they accumulate, they accumulate in a trust in something you don't even know fully. And I don't mean faith. I mean trust because of direct experience. The direct experience of the deathless is available to us as we build concentration, as we build a willingness to go beyond who we've been, and also as we come to a place where we no longer own our meditation, but that we just open to it, and we open further and further, we open past who we know we are. I've even seen people come out of meditations and say, I've just got to sit for a moment to come back to who I was, or to go back to who I am, because I've gone so far past it for a moment, uh, not that it's scary or anything, of course it's scary in the first confrontation with not being who you thought you were, but then there is this enormous release this enormous release of all the holding of a lifetime. Uh, and with that, with that feeling of the deathless, uh, it comes a feeling that um, death is not, um, that the deathless is something that's always with us, and that when we think from the deathless, those are the thoughts you might say we're most proud of, those are the thoughts that most enable the heart, its natural speech, its natural walk, it's natural thought. So what I know, I know from experiencing, um, not to get into this too far, but there are experiences available to one where one actually sees what happens at death, a second after death, what seems to happen for a little bit, and, what, and then what uh, seems to happen after that. Now, it could easily be a hallucination, but I must say it's a very consistent hallucination, and uh, People all over the world have had it throughout time. So it may not be a hallucination. We may well just be tapping into who we are. It sounds very specialized and all, but it isn't. Once you start to meditate, once you start to feel yourself, other levels, ooh, look at that. And not only other levels of, of, of available gift, but ooh, other levels of, ooh, did I miss the boat on that one? I didn't even realize that that might have caused somebody difficulty. And so you start cleaning up. Self-forgiveness comes in. What it is, is if we can die whole, if we can die uh, heartfully, with forgiveness for the people in our lives, with mercy on ourselves for for our own tomfoolery. And the thing is, let's say it's none of this. What difference does it make? Does it change the value of love one iota? No. Does it change the power of fear one iota? No. But when you start to bring those two together, fear and love, a love being the highest form of awareness before you go past the individual awareness, uh, the more you feel that, the less death is a threat. Now, I notice that it, this is right going back to how the conversation, our conversation started, that we notice that as we get older, part of our shedding is shedding. It's like uh, in the old days, Andre and I might have said, oh, we could, let's get in the car and go to somewhere and 
do something and we'll stay there a week and not anymore. Andrea has leukemia. I've got neurological problems. So those things are not a given. But it's very interesting to watch the thought arise of those things, stay for a minute, and just disappear. Because that isn't what's happening now. This is what's happening now. And this is as good a sightseeing as we're ever going to see anywhere. Stephen, you, you mentioned Andrea's leukemia and that you've been having uh, you know neurological challenges of some kind. And I know you both have suffered quite a number of physical illnesses and challenges. And I think I, I was on uh, levinetalks.com, your, your new website that I'd like to talk to you about, that I, I saw this quote, illness as an apprenticeship, that we've been, been living our lives with illness as an apprenticeship. And I'm wondering if you can explain what you mean by that. How is illness an apprenticeship? How is illness an apprenticeship? Um... Well, it confronts us with everything that, that life has to offer. Uh, expectation, hope, hope being generally based on fear. Uh, so the, the apprenticeship to life is really, um, you see everything that life has to offer, you see expectation, which is one of the great expectation is probably the state of mind that gave us birth in the first place. If you... Uh, are interested or investigate reincarnative ideas. It's desire, it's, it's intention uh, that, that causes us to grasp, uh, to hold, to embrace, or even to push away, therefore, to take birth in another body. Because some bodies we may take birth in are bodies that we did not find attractive, are lives we did not find attractive, but teachings that something in our heart calls out for. Uh, that, you know, life is an apprenticeship for who we really can be. When we meet somebody who has become actualized, so to speak, it is instantly recognizable. Instantly recognizable. I remember somebody came up to me and said, oh, you're just so enlightened, you're just so um, wise, or whatever it was. And Rick Fields, was, an old friend, was standing next to me, and he walked away and he said, well, it's good you're here. This way they can find out what the real thing is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. We mistake a lot of people who are just um, uh, interesting to be more enlightened than they are. And I think that we also, we forget that enlightenment is, is right in us. Enlightenment is, this, is a momentary experience of who we really are. And this thing about uh, uh, forever enlightenment, that don't be cruel to yourself like that. Have mercy on yourself. Lightening. Just lightenment we talk about. And I think that one of the things we learn from illness is how soft belly and how lightenment can open a space. It's like if you went into a room and there was a blazing fire in the middle of the room. What you would do, now you can't put out that fire. That fire is, we'll call it fear, or we'll call it pain, or we'll call it death. And, and you can't get close to it because it just is there. It's burning. It's got its own fuel. It's just burning. But you can step back from it. Let it have its own nature. You can step back from it and back from it until you can get a comfortable relationship with the heat. That heat being the fear of death. That heat being uh, the pain. But you can find a, a space it may be quite a ways away at first. And you take one step at a time closer to the heat. And you be able, you're able to start using that heat to warm yourself. You start using that heat to recognize the field of sensation. You start using that heat to recognize all the things you've been ducking, all the things you've been fearful of. And it's an apprenticeship in the sense that you're learning to become a whole human being by watching yourself a piece at a time. Mm -hmm. now, now, I mentioned that I saw this quote, illness as an apprenticeship, uh, at a new website, levinetalks.com. And this is a new subscription-oriented site where you and Andrea are giving new monthly video teachings on a regular basis each month. And I'm, I'm curious what the motivation is for you to be doing this. 
LevineTalks.com. Well, when I haven't traveled, we haven't traveled in 10 years. I just noticed at a certain point that um, my energy was flagging. Um, and it was way, it's way too important, the work we did. If I had just, if I'd been just teaching meditation, you could just bring people back to things and answering meditation questions, that's one thing, and that would have been good. But when you're working with people who are in very tricky situations, any, uh, dying, uh, dying, confronting sexual abuse, um, uh, as my concentration was flagging, as my energy was flagging, I wasn't, I felt, I wasn't giving all I could give, and I can't, not a, miss, a single misword could cause such difficulty for someone. So I stopped teaching. And the, the writing and, and the Internet site allows us to teach without leaving home, and uh, that's very nice, because traveling isn't good for our, us physically, really. So this has been really nice. It's been very interesting. Young friends of ours, I mean young friends of ours in their 20s, approached us and said, can we do this? Will you let us make a site for you? We had never considered doing it. Um, and so uh, he said, let me do Levine Talks. And we said, sure. He, um, I've given him manuscripts, unpublished manuscripts that are going to start filtering their way in. There's also now uh, a column where Andrea's answering people's questions. Um, some of them very difficult. Some of them about, I mean, because now we're talking about, on the site, we're talking about illness. We're talking about death. We're talking about healing. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about cultivating various states of mind, uh, mercy, loving kindness, uh, clarity. Um, uh, clarity, particularly trying to, to give practices and encourage um, energies to, for one to free oneself up some. And it's very nice to do it that way. Uh, I noticed at a certain point, you know, we would be walking into the room and there'd be, we'll say, 700 people there. And it would be really lovely to walk in and to work with them. But then it got to be like we were walking into hell. There was so much pain in that room. And we're not talking, the pain of dying was very little next to the pain that people were experiencing in their lives from other people's inconsiderate action. And that is an understatement uh, that universes could pass through. So um, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't for me, and it wasn't for Andrea what it was once. It was like a, a descent into uh, people's burning hearts. And it was time... People were also coming up and saying... Uh, uh, a woman who is the head of uh, well, it doesn't matter who she is but she's an authority on the subject she said do you know that you guys are suffering from secondary uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome from working with all these sexually abused people and I said no I hadn't noticed that she said well you should look at it and other people other therapists have come up and said that to us too so we thought it's time to take care of ourselves yeah uh, and it's very hard to stop. It's very hard not to be the person we've built ourselves up to be. And people rely on us, and it's quite a, a shedding to trust what you, that you, what you've left will be enough and that people will get what they need. Now, Stephen, I just have one final question for you. Yes. You said that one of the most common experiences when people are on their deathbed the reason that they're afraid of dying is because of some sense of unfinished business. Some yes. feeling, I'm not done. I don't want to die. I'm not done yet. And, right. and I'm curious, in the beginning of our conversation, you said that in a sense, you're, you're now sitting at your own bedside in a certain sense, being in this final phase of your life. Do you feel done? Do you feel that you're carrying unfinished business with you or not? Absolutely. Absolutely, I carry unfinished business with me. I think we all have unfinished business. And sometimes, uh, I mean, it's like, sometimes you'll have unfinished business, you say, oh, I've got to tell this person I'm sorry. I should have been more skillful. And you'll see them 20 years later, and you'll say, you know, when that happened, I wanted to see, you, and they'll say, you kidding? That thing moved me ahead eight squares. <laughs> you never know what's happening in somebody else's heart when you say something to them, or how they work through something. Um, but I think that all of us should remember that, of course, we've got, have mercy, big surprise, we've got unfinished business. 
big surprise. Forgiveness works and makes us, you know, you want to test whether you have unfinished business or not? Do the forgiveness meditation. See what comes up to block. When you turn toward yourself and say, I forgive you for everything you have ever done in word, in thought, in speech, in intention, I forgive you. And you and you're talking to yourself. I forgive me. You watch what comes up to block that. The one all the stuff that says, Oh no, that's self indulgent. Oh no, you're too nasty for that. Oh no, you got too much unfinished business for that. How merciless are we gonna be? I mean all the teaching all the teaching of Jesus, all the teaching of Mohammed, of 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 Sarada Devi of Mary that's all right in us all you have to do is look at the mind look how it pulls back when it when someone is calling for you to move forward just watch how unloving we are and you will see the cause of our taking birth and the reason the reason that we uh, this unfinished business is not a tragedy it's just uh, what is there it just is and everyone has unfinished business. Everyone, I've never met anyone who wasn't in grief. Everyone is in grief. Everyone has unfinished business. And they may be even incorrect in what they think, as I said, the unfinished business effect was. Nonetheless, we hold, they hold, I and you hold, something that is feels unfinished. All I can say to that is for us to get a little bit more... Uh, sense of humor about how uh, famished we are, how confused we are. Of course, we're like that. Big surprise. I mean, that's all I can really say. That's very Big good. Surprise. We have we have unfinished business. Have mercy on yourself. Wonderful, Stephen. Wonderful to talk with you after so many years. Stephen Levine, the author of many audio programs with Sounds True, including To Love and Be Loved an audio program about the depths and challenges of relationship, A Year to Live, which is an audio of Stephen's best-selling book, A Year to Live, In the Heart Lies the Deathless, as well as a program on the grief process. Stephen also has a new subscription website that features monthly video talks, questions and answers. It's all available at levinetalks.com. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.